The presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. Lately, teachers from all over have been working together to find new approaches to provide quality remote education. Participate's sister company, Participate Learning, presents United We Teach, a global gathering place for educators to share distance learning resources as we navigate these strange times. For these resources and more, visit participate.com slash oneducation. I literally lie in my bed and I watch Glenn play Hearthstone. Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We'll talk about how things are going in lockdown, part two. We'll obviously spend some time chatting about this week's events in Washington, D.C. And on a more positive note, what is going on in a virtual Washington, D.C. next week. Our guest this week is University of Colorado Boulder School of Education's Kevin Wilner. So just like almost every movie, the sequel is way worse than the first one. <laughs> Everybody was like, 2021. Yeah, it only took seven days. <laughs> and it's already worse um, in almost every way. Um, you, you know what's funny? Um, so so we're in lockdown, sort of. I, I actually am like... This isn't a lockdown in Ontario um, because our government doesn't like to shut down businesses, mm. um, which is ridiculous because that's how the virus is spread. You know, sure. and I'm not even a scientist and I know that. Um, but anyways, we've been buying our groceries online for the last couple weeks okay. now um, because we don't like to go. I go out um, once a week to get my back looked at by physio and stuff like that. Cause that's definitely the source of my physical problems that I've had the last few months. Mm. Um, but that's the only time I've been leaving the house and school is fully remote now. Um, so we've been ordering our food and it's been going really well. Okay. Glenn. But, nice. but this week, <laughs> this week we, the, and this is funny. L- listen, all the respect in the world to the people that are working in the grocery stores and sure. stocking the shelves and picking the groceries and doing the jobs. Like, I mean, love these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we definitely got the new guy. Uh, <laughs> this week. Did we got the random stuff or what happened? <laughs> we got a lot of wrong items like where it was like, um, <laughs> but the funny, there was a funny one. Okay. 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 So we, <laughs> We we um we had blueberries on the shopping list. Sure, a, cer- a certain packaging of blueberries, and when they can't find that packaging, they do a swap out of course, for yeah. for a different kind of packaging or whatever, right? And there's a web system, and you can choose to approve it or not. And on the picture of the swap out, so the the gentleman couldn't find the blueberries, um, okay. in the size and and whatever that we um chose. Um, and, and he swapped them out and we saw the picture and it said it's blueberries. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. So we unpacked the groceries and guess what we got? We got chocolate covered blueberries, <laughs> like, like candy. And dude, it, it's right on the, you know, dude, there's blueberries. They're, gross. And they're gross. Like this would be like, 
They're gross. They're really gross. It's That's not good, like chocolate. Huh? Listen, if you want to substitute my blueberries for chocolate covered almonds, I'm cool with it. But chocolate covered blueberries are the terrible. Best thing is, is that you tried them? <laughs> Uh, right? I tried one. I was like, okay, okay. I was like, so I said to Cheryl, like, like that. I said, I said, yeah. I said, you know what? Let's give the guy whatever. I mean, we're not going to. We're not those people. We don't like send back food at the restaurant. Yeah, and yeah. you know, we we we're not those people. So we wouldn't complain. We wouldn't be like, you, we demand you drive us proper blueberries. You know, that's stupid. We don't do that. But. I'm like, well, maybe there's a silver cloud on. Maybe there's a silver lining on this. Maybe they're actually good. And I, I'm not a blueberry guy, really. Cheryl's the blueberry <laughs> person, and Jacob, Jay, Cheryl, and Jacob like blueberries. Um, so I said, let's. Tr- I'm gonna try one. Oh, oh, bad. Oh, bad. <laughs> like, like it wasn't even good chocolate, right? And I'm not even a super chocolate person either, shockingly. <laughs> but, but like they weren't. They just weren't good. And so I'm, um, I'm, they're sitting on our kitchen counter and I don't know what to do with them because mm. I, I, I should throw them out yeah. because no you, one's going to eat them. Yeah, if you had Glenn over there, I'd eat them. I'd probably I'd eat You'd everything. You'd chocolate-covered blueberries, would you? I'm not sure if I've eaten chocolate-covered blueberries, well, but now that you've just mentioned that they're not that good, don't. I'm going to stay no, away. No, no. Like, even away. like... I like chocolate covered a lot of things. Sure. Obvious, like look at me. Obviously, <laughs> love sweet. we both love sweets. <laughs> uh, I mean, so like chocolate covered raisins. I oh, like yeah. chocolate covered peanuts and chocolate mm. covered. I uh, chocolate covered strawberries. Ooh, you know, are they're so fantastic. good. Yes, mm. but not chocolate blueberries. Covered, I actually don't even know if there's blueberry. Like I, I I'm gonna actually, you know, when we're done here, go I'm gonna go. Ingredients. I'm gonna go like one open. I'm at because I just like popped it in my mouth, right? I'm gonna cut, cut it open. open. I'm, I'm actually interested to see if it's like a, if it's a, if it's a an actual blueberry in there, or it's, it's a blueberry, blueberry like yes. whatever. Exactly. Yes, blueberry <laughs> sort of blueberry flavored nonsense inside. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my god, that's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> so that's that was our. Uh, we got we got some other things like instead of salt and vinegar chips, we got we got sour cream and onion. Um, which is fine. I I'm fine with that. Um, but but the blueberries were 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 you know a big mistake and um pretty funny and they're pretty gross. I can just imagine though this guy he's or or woman whoever this it was a guy was. yeah it was a guy yeah. got was doing the shopping and he's like okay blueberries goes and finds the tries to find the little pints because they come in pints or whatever and then they're he's like those the aren't there. <laughs> So let's go to the candy one. section and get blueberry. Like they're not even in the same part of the grocery <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like you go to the second one and then you go, oh, I, I think there might be blueberries that in the candy section. I'll grab those. I'm gonna. I thought I saw blueberries over there with the candy. Yeah, so I'm gonna go get the blueberries in the candy section. I, that is awesome. I can't wait to hear what happens next week. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you, you you know what i i'm fine i deal you deal with it you move we're sure. moving on from the blueberries Absolutely. It, it, I, I might actually eat them because i don't feel like throwing stuff out we'll see oh, i'll take a yeah, picture yeah. of it though and show it to you yeah, um, I because i imagine you would eat them uh, for sure dude that's yeah. the- <laughs> 
I've, I've, might, seen, I've seen your candy consumption. I think yeah. you would eat them. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. So, so that's 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 what's happening. Um, what else is happening? I love waking up in the morning. Um, the last week or so. Yeah. And um, you know, you roll over, and I grab my phone, and I, <laughs> you know, I I see, you know, what what what's happened in the middle of the night. Who's won elections? Because that's that's happening sure. these days. Yeah. And. Lo and behold, almost every morning, <laughs> early morning, <laughs> there's a notification that Irv Spanish is on Twitch streaming Hearthstone. So what do I do? I literally lie in my bed and I watch Glenn play Hearthstone. So anytime I'm watching you at six in the morning, I'm, yeah, I am in bed. You can just assume that I'm lying in bed. I've literally just woken up. And the first thing I do is come and watch you play video games. Glenn. It's my uh, early morning stream, um, and it's pretty fun. It's it's fun. It's uh, I'm trying to not uh, rage, uh, get angry about the game itself, and just enjoy it. Uh, and it's just it's more hilarious than anything else. And um, yeah, thank you for actually jumping on there, Mike. You you it's go fun. on there and uh, give me some conversation. You tell me what's good and what's not as far as maybe the music being too loud or <laughs> you can't hear me. I had my in-laws here, so I had to be quiet because uh, they were just in the other room here uh, yeah. from where my office was at. But now I can be loud because they went back uh, to North Dakota. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if you guys want to jump on there, that'd be freaking awesome. More than anything, just say hello. Early morning streams. I think I early started like at 4.15 Central Time, so Oof. that's really early. <laughs> Some early morning Hearthstone and coffee, man. It's good. Yeah, I love it. I love it too. Yes, Uh, I am. I am emotionally done with Minecraft for a little while now. Um, It's been a grind. Like, like I love Minecraft, obviously. Yes. Um, but you know, I've been grinding away at this this Washington D.C. world for the better part of two months. And, um, so that's my streams have almost all been that, Hmm. um, and it's been, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing some other games, but definitely I'm streaming. The stream is picking up steam pretty, pretty actively. Um, and, and lots of YouTube videos. Hmm? There was a huge Reddit post that you, that you were Reddit post. Yes. You were talking about the build, which if you guys haven't seen this, you need to see this because you're going to be whether you're a Minecraft fan or you know anything about video games does not matter when you see this creation, it is ridiculous. I mean, it's not just the Capitol building, right? It is Washington DC. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll link the YouTube video that I put together for the Capitol building fly through. Um, But I'm also working on doing a whole DC flyover in the next couple of days that I'll put on my YouTube channel, my, my streaming YouTube channel. Um, and I'd love, uh, I'm really trying to push for some subscribers there. So if you yes. feel, you feel so inclined, um, I don't need, um, you know, all I'm, all I'm really asking for is a couple, couple smashes of that subscribe button. Um, I got I want to get to a hundred subscribers so I can change my name from that stupid channel gobbledygook. 
that it uh, that shows up, you know, with your, for your channel name. It's stupid. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, no, we're really excited. It's almost done today. Actually, literally right today on Monday is the cutoff day for the build. So mm-hmm. we've we've stopped. Uh, we've so so some interesting stats. We have over two hundred and fifty NPCs in the world. Wow. Um, they all have custom professionally researched dialogue and they are all skinned to look like the people that they are so um and we're talking about everyone from like celebrities like trevor noah and Dwayne wade and kareem abdul jabbar are all in the world um politicians and 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 like ruth bader ginsburg um michelle obama is in the world um um Amazing. Um, who else is in the Oprah Winfrey is in the world. Um, and then all of these civil rights activists from the sixties um, and everyone, if basically anyone that was fairly well known that we knew was at the March on Washington is in the world and standing at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, so there's about 50 people up on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, including Dr. Martin Luther King yeah. and John Lewis are there. Sammy Davis Jr. and like dozens, dozens of other um, mm. activists that were at the March on Washington in the 60s. Um, but then there are people at the at the um, there are people at the Capitol building like um, Alexandria or Cortez and a number of other people are at the Capitol building. And then there are people at the white house um i was thinking uh, actually I, i'm kind of like uh uh fawning over the skin for my my man jagmeet singh is at the white house so a canadian has made oh. it to the to into the world uh but jagmeet singh is like a pretty you know influential figure in terms of being a an obvious person of color that's like within proximity to real power i mean i mean if he wins the next election he'd be the he'd be the prime minister of Canada and, and the man's a Sikh. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a thing, right? So, I yes. mean, there's, there's some substance there. And so I'm excited that Jagmeet Singh is in the, in the world. Um, and so there are, there are, there are hundreds of NPCs. Um, the, the white house is built Lincoln Memorial, Washington monument, Capitol building. Um, a lot of the space around it, the MLK Memorial, the Korean war Memorial, um, are all built. The World War II Memorial is built. Um, where, um, if you want to sign up to participate in the guided tour experience yes. that we're providing. So what we're doing is there's a tour. There's like a tour guide. A real person will be on a Zoom call with you and giving you a tour as if you were traveling, mm. like as if you were a tourist. And How so amazing. there will be a person giving you a guided tour in Washington, D.C., uh, the link is in the show notes, but I'll say it out loud here. It's laworks.com slash MLK. So laworks.com slash MLK. And you sign up for a time slot. You're going to join a Zoom call. You're going to have a tour guide there. They're going to be able to guide you through the experience, directing you towards you know the NPCs so that you can learn their stories. And then you're going to be invited to a little space uh, where you can build any sort of like reflection or statue or building that you want to build in the little space as a way to to think back on on the experience. How so amazing. that is happening on Martin Luther King Day. Uh, so a week today um, is when it's happening, um, and and I'm pretty excited about the whole the whole thing. It's we been a journey. Get some, uh, real life politicians to know that. 
you know, Alexander. Yeah, we, tr- we tried, man. We we linked and tagged and yes. used. Uh, I used as. I, I mean, I don't have like a huge, huge reach. We tried to to try to get get get, yeah. get as much people's attention as we as we could. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, mm. I I think we would be remiss, Glenn, if we didn't mention at least a little bit. Speaking of, yeah. you know, the capital uh, about you know what happened last week. Um, we, we've been talking pretty actively with other people on both Facebook and, and Twitter, um, personally and, and whatever. Um, but I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the podcast, sure. um, only, only because we've actually spent some time talking about this already. We did. Um, live. Um, so, um, what should I say about this on, on the day it was happening? I was pretty upset, as imagine, you know, we all were. Um, but I also had to keep working <laughs> on yes. on this world because we had to get this done. And and so I posted a tweet early in the day um, that said, you know, you know, we build this to honor Martin Luther King and what he stood for, and that stands in contrast to what these insurrectionists stood for. And that, you know, because of that, I'm going to continue to build and go live, even though I don't feel like doing it. And I thought the best way that I could process my personal feelings about what was going on was actually to talk to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I sent you a message um, probably around four o'clock or so and said, you know, do you want to come on my stream? And you you just hop in Discord and and let's talk about this, yeah. you know, live, and the day of, like, without a whole lot of like space. I know to 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 reflect. You know, someone sent me a message later and said, "I can't believe you're going to go on and and do this right now." And I'm like, "Well, this is how I do things." <laughs> um. Yes. So. So I I. We're going to take the conversation. It was on my Twitch channel. Um, I'm going to download that video. I'm going to edit it lightly so that you don't get the whole three-hour stream. Um, but the the conversation that Glenn and I had was about an hour, maybe a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put it on the On Education YouTube channel. And um, I hope you go and listen to our thoughts there. Um, it will be, it's very raw. <laughs> it's uh, unedited. It won't be like the podcast. Um, and, and, um, it's obviously my stream. So I'm like thanking people for, you know, following and stuff like that every once in a while as well. But, um, yeah, what a week. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad that I got the chance to talk about it with you. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, we did it when we did it. I yeah. think I think it was good. I think we were. Uh, I, it was a good. We needed to process it, mm-hmm. and even at the moment when we were talking about just basically our biggest topic was, I mean, uh, more than why did this happen or you know the details, etc. It was like, as educators, what do we do tomorrow? You know, that was, and that's really the core of the conversation and you, and you should definitely listen to it um, because 
when those events happen, as an educator, you have to have a, you have to be prepared to let your students allow them the space to discuss this this uh, tragedy and Mm -hmm. to uh to be able to guide that conversation to facilitate it to give them the space the opportunity uh make sure you're obviously filling in the facts uh we talked about terms and and then what types of uh of activities you could possibly basically have your students partake in and kind of put everything off to the side and let them talk you know, uh, whether or reflect and writes, uh, you know, in a journal or, or, or even out loud, depending upon what your current situations were. Um, and from what I'm gathering, as far as the post that event and what happened at school, many educators in every content area took the time to go ahead and allow the students time and uh, gave them the guidance and facilitated the conversations so that we did have that uh, ability to do that, and it's like we said on the on the on that stream. I don't think this is over yet, not by a long shot. Not even it won't be over on January twentieth. And it, it there's a there's a lot of it's a lot more than what just happened at at the Capitol, and there's a lot of things that. Um, we as educators will have to work through with our students and hopefully grow and come together again. You know, that's really what you can say is like, there's a big separation, a big divide. Um, And I I hope that this year, 2021 will be a year where we can uh, mend some of those uh, things that are really, really broken. And it didn't start off well, my God. Yeah, it start off well, and and uh, I just hope that it could be a year that by the end in December when we're talking about it goes. You know, it started off horribly, but look at where we're at now. That would be that'd be my wish. That'd be my uh, my desire. Yeah, same. So yeah. that's where to find our thoughts yes. on it um, beyond what we've just talked about now, and we hope you go and 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 listen to that if you're interested in knowing. Uh, our our takes um we it's funny (laughs) i i so wish that this conference was in person the impact education conference is happening this week and we're not there i am not going to get sushi train this year (laughs) um i am counting on getting sushi train next year sure um and so cindy um please have on education back next year so that i can have sushi train i'll do i'll do like you know i'll talk and stuff but you know i really i really just want sushi in minneapolis um (laughs) no i'm joking um but you and um you and dave are presenting and one of our previous recent previous guests victoria thompson is is one of the keynotes am i right Yep, and it's it's turned into a virtual conference, and it's a three day conference. Actually, kicked off by the infamous friend of the podcast, uh, Carl Hooker, who oh, no. would do a uh, tr- 
trivia night. Uh, yeah, we did that last year. It was so we good. did that in life. So it's, this is a virtual trivia night. And then we uh, have two days of conference uh, with uh, uh, keynote speakers on each of the nights, or sorry, each of the days to kick off the days. And they've set it up very well uh, for what you can do, you know, as far as a virtual conference. And we love Impact Education Conference, formerly TIES. And next year, in person, live, it's going to happen. December, so. December, we're doing it, and then we will have our I table. So. We're ready to go ahead and and uh, be back together and get to see all of you amazing listeners and then mm-hmm. all of our guests and give each other hugs with no masks. Give each other hugs with no masks. Yeah, so so that's exciting. and And hopefully if you... Uh, if you'd like, uh, we'll put a link to the Impact Education Conference in the show notes. If if you um, can can um, get there in time, you might you might be able to still catch a little For bit sure. of the program. Um, we got some accolades this week, I guess. Yeah, tell we us. We are we are. Um, so there's a site uh, called Feedspot, and it does all kinds of different things, including podcasts and all kinds of shows, TV shows, etc. And it kind of ranks some different, uh, podcasts. And, um, our friend of the show, Michael Matera has a podcast, uh, on game-based learning and it's fantastic. It's called the well-played podcast, I believe. Yes. Okay. I'm just making sure I didn't have missed one word there. Well-played podcast yes and anyway michael posted that the, his game based uh learning podcast let's call it in that content area is is the number one podcast of that specific category so then i was like where are we an educational podcast you know like according to this ranking system etc so i sure. went onto the site and i was like boom Number three. So there's this top 25 educational podcast you must listen to in 2021. Share it with all of your friends <laughs> because we're number three. Let's get to number one in 2022. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah. I don't even know how they rate any of these things. I mean, they have some numbers there. Do you see these numbers? It's kind of kind of like some fuzzy math, as George W. Bush used to say. I don't know where the numbers actually come from or whatever it might be, but we'll take it. We will take a, a top uh, 25 educational podcast and, and be number three on the list. Uh, thank you so much to all the listeners, obviously. You guys are amazing. Thank you for yeah. sharing this. Um, and just thank you for being awesome people and giving us ideas and feedback on, on, on the show itself. And we were just describing to the guest you're about to listen to, Kevin Wilder, that it's three years, Mike. Yes, it's been almost three years. <laughs> we started in March 2018. Mm-hmm. It's been a run. We're doing awesome. <laughs> Wild. It's crazy. So, yes, thanks, everybody. And, and we'll, we'll share the link and, and you can check that out um it's 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 gonna be a little bit different around here i think for the next three weeks it's 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 we're we're in a policy run um and we're gonna we're taking some deep dives um we hope that you listen because all of the next three weeks worth of guests are super fascinating and come with tons of knowledge and experience as far as educational policy is concerned. And our next guest is no exception. Uh, Stay tuned. We will be back with Kevin Wellner.
Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Our guest is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder School of Education, and he specializes in educational policy. He's also the director of the National Education Policy Center housed at CU Boulder. He's the author of over a dozen books and more than 100 articles and book chapters. Welcome to On Education, Kevin Wellner. Well, thank you. It's a, it's 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 great to be here, uh, Mike and and Glenn. So, as you know, uh, I'm sure uh, <laughs> everyone in the education knows, uh, education world knows that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos uh, resigned. Um, well. You know, last week, I guess. Um, and I think a lot of educators, um, especially those who aren't well versed in politics or policy, like Glenn and I, are pretty well versed in politics and policy we don't study it or anything but we 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 i i guess what i'm saying is a lot of people don't understand that she was bad like she was bad right and they can like say oh betsy devos was terrible and you know and and go look at like her getting roasted on cpap by you know um by any number of senators um but they don't fully understand how bad so i i guess the first question is how bad was it and in what ways was it tangibly bad sounds like an old jay leno setup line how bad was she (laughs) what we do here (laughs) so she was so bad no i i don't have a joke with that but (laughs) she she was in a lot of ways she really differed from past Republican um, secretaries of education, more in who she was and how she presented herself than in the policies that she was promoting. Um, the, if you actually look at the, the policy agenda, it wasn't much different from, for example, Margaret Spelling's policy agenda. Um, what was largely different was partly her background, right? So she did mm-hmm. not come out of any public education experience. I think she once tutored some at-risk kids. You know, that, that's, that's it. Um, her, she went to pri- private schools, her kids went to private schools. Um, and her, the mark that she had made on education coming into the, uh, the office was as a donor and as a philanthropist who focused on funding um, private privatization efforts, voucher uh, efforts in particular. Right. Um, so her, I think it's called the Alliance for School Choice was the main organization that she, uh, and I, and I looked that up. Hopefully I didn't get that wrong, but I believe it was called the, it still is mm. around, um, mm. just, you know, switched directorships when she left. Um, and that was, that's a voucher um, advocacy organization. So she came in essentially as a symbol. She, she embodied the agenda more than than her predecessors Mm. and in a very in-your-face way that was unapologetic Um, and i think that the agenda has never been a popular one you know privatizing public education is not a popular agenda even though you could frame a particular question around vouchers for example to get fairly high buy-in when when people, I think there have been 
know, somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen state level initiatives where voters weighed in on vouchers. And every single time, most recently in Arizona, voters rejected vouchers. So this is not a particularly popular agenda. Right. Um, and it's not just the vouchers. I mean, she, like prior Republican, administra Republican administrations, uh, her Department of Education de-emphasized civil rights enforcement um, in a lot of ways pushed back against um, people receiving uh, fair and equitable treatment through civil rights and anti-discrimination laws. Um, and there were other controversial, particularly around higher education um, initiatives that were launched uh, and not just launched, but some ways successful. So there were, um, if you recall, during the Obama administration, there was a um, push to address the for-profit education industries preying on uh, people and, and using federal uh, grant money, loan money, um, to uh, fund these for-profit endeavors that were not providing um, high-quality educational experiences or career training uh, that would be useful for people. Um, and so that was, that was a crackdown during the Obama administration, Obama administration. Not only did she reverse that, but she actually brought in the industry people to do the job. Um, so there, and then there was the, the initiative in higher education around uh, sexual assaults and changing the rules around that um, to give more, the, the nice way to put it is more due process protections to the accused, to the accuser, excuse me, to the accused, um, and essentially, um, you know, taking those protections away from the accuser. Um, so there's a, uh, a wide range of changes that were made during the, um, the last four years, but I would argue that for the most part, these are the same sorts of changes that would be promoted by any Republican uh, Secretary of Education. And if, if Donald Trump had chosen a different non-Betsy DeVos person, that person probably would have had a very similar agenda. The difference is that she um, was sort of the perfect Cruella DeVille symbol of that uh, agenda. Well, she couldn't, she couldn't, like, I think my biggest takeaway from Betsy DeVos is that she couldn't speak to the issues. Like when you got her in a room, like all of these amazing, like Elizabeth Warren just destroying her in a Senate hearing is like because she couldn't talk about what was being asked of her. She would pivot to like bears or yeah. whatever, <laughs> right? Like that's the famous one. And, and, you know, of all of the things that I think are her legacy, it's got to be that she just couldn't she couldn't handle the conversations about the portfolio that she was actually working in. I think that's fair, Mike. And I, I should I should have acknowledged that, that 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 other secretaries of education with similar agendas have been more informed and uh, more prepared uh, to speak about the issues. So uh, while the agenda, while the policy agendas might have been similar, the preparedness, uh, I think, was dissimilar. Um, yeah. she, you know, and she didn't, it's, it's to be expected. She came in as an advocate for one narrow set of issues. Yeah. Um, and her ability to be an advocate was because she came from a rich family and married into a rich family, right? She married into the, well, uh, the, um, uh, Is it Amway? Amway, thank you. She married into the Amway fortune. Right. Uh, but, 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 you know, she was, 
she was privileged coming into that marriage as well. So she had a tremendous amount of, of resources that allowed her to become a very effective advocate in terms of, of a political donor and a philanthropist. Um, it wasn't, she wasn't self-made in terms of, of uh, you know, needing to become an expert uh, in a wide, you know, not just on, on vouchers, but on similar issues. Right. She was important because of the resources she brought to bear. Sort of no pun intended. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Kevin, this is um, now over twenty years that I've been in public education, and I actually started in the state of California randomly. Um, I've moved throughout the country. I'm now in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, but even back then, I remember there's specific policies and w- well-known agendas that are just out there on, especially I would say in the Republican right. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is what you just spoke of, which is the idea of giving uh, vouchers or tax credits for attending private schools. And in a way, they sell this as a way of allowing people who would have not had the opportunity to be able to attend these prestigious schools uh, private schools, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. to, as a way to be able to go ahead and do that. And for example, in the state of Georgia, there was a program uh, called QEE, uh, the Qualified Education Expense Tax Credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it made a bunch of claims, and it even had some research, I guess, uh, that basically was bettering the lives of these students in the state of Georgia. Um, and you wrote a a response, a retort to that research, because mm-hmm. I think it's really easy. I mean, we've, we, we live in a time where we've proven that many times over where it's really easy to push out disinformation. That is research. I'm putting quotes up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to sell that as the idea and the reason why you should do X, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're trying to push. Um, and that happens so often now, and it happens a lot in education. And in this topic, you actually had a really good response or a retort to basically this research that was trying to push this this agenda. Can you tell us more about that? What are the problems with programs like this QEE or just the push for vouchers in general? Because it sounds like a really good idea. I remember what you're talking about, um, but you know, it was several months ago, which is several years ago in 2020 <laughs> time. Um, so uh, I believe it was, I think that the, the piece we respond, I was responding to focused on this claim that uh, the, the tax credit mechanism was saving the state money. Um, yes. It was uh, a way for the state to shift the funding of education from taxpayers to the people going to private schools by encouraging them with a incentive, with a financial incentive or a subsidy to to take their kids out of pri- public school and move them to private school. And there were a whole bunch of problems with the argument that was set forth. Um, and uh, it was, I think, the response was published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my recollection, but I don't. Um, and and the it gets into a lot of, of nuance, but the main problem with a lot of these vouchers will save the public money arguments is that voucher laws, in particular these what I call neo-voucher laws, or these, these mechanisms that use tax credits to generate the, vo- the voucher money, yes. is, they are designed 
specifically to be opaque. You cannot, because it's essentially taking taxpayer money and moving it into a private unregulated system, once that money leaves the the coffers, either directly or indirectly, they the, the money just disappears. I mean, there, there isn't a lot of reporting. There isn't a lot of accountability in terms of, you know, the students receiving the money, having to, you know, check in, provide test scores, that sort of thing. So we get these um, these uh, advocacy think tanks that are pushing for vouch- for vouchers, coming up with these reports that say, "Hey, this is this is great. It yeah. does, the students do really well, and and the state saves money." And it's based on a lot of smoke and mirrors in terms mm-hmm. of the, the the underlying facts getting to the claim. And the big problem with with a lot of the claims, and this one in particular is that we don't know how many of the people receiving that money, let me let me use some concrete numbers. Let's say it costs $10,000 a year to educate a kid in Georgia. Um, and let's say the average uh, neo-voucher given to a family is $3,000. That means for every family that moves from public school to private school, the state saves $3,000. Excuse me, mm. saves $7,000 because they've spent $3,000 instead of $10,000. Um, but for every family that would have gone to public, to, excuse me, to private school anyway, that that's what are called non-switchers. In other words, they they would have been going to private school anyway, and now the state is giving them a three thousand uh, dollar subsidy. Well, that, that, in that case, the state is losing three thousand. Yes. So if the and I'm you know I'm coming up with with completely made up numbers here, right? I don't I don't know what the average was, but. Um, actually, in the piece that I wrote, I think there there were concrete numbers, and so I, I walked through the specific break-even point. But in the, in that case, the break-even point would be three and a third students, right? So, if there were three and a third non-switchers for every one switcher, then you have a break-even point. If there are four non-switchers for every switcher, then you have the state. Then it costs the state money. And the mm. problem is we don't know we don't know how many switchers there are. We don't know how many people no. would have otherwise gone. And and, and then there, there's the other half of it, which is that vouchers don't work. They don't raise students' measured achievement. In Louisiana, in Indiana, in Ohio, in Washington, D.C., we actually do have those measured, you know, they use the test scores, which, of course, are limited in terms of their ability to count everything that we care about uh, in terms of a kid's education, but it's what we use, right? It's what we have. Um, and voucher advocates have long said we need vouchers because look at all these low test scores in public schools. So if if the public schools in Washington, D.C. have such horrendous test scores, if the public schools in Cleveland have such horrendous test scores, then what one would hope that the kids using vouchers to leave those public schools could at least have higher test scores than the horrendous uh, yes. scores that the public schools are generating. And they don't. Um, what, these, what these studies are showing time after time now is that the students are losing ground. If you get a voucher, you're going to end up doing worse on average than if you don't get a voucher. So we have the government putting this giant-sized thumb 
on the scale of charitable giving with these neo voucher laws. And I, I, let me back up and explain what a, what a neo voucher law is because it, it ties back to Betsy DeVos as well, because she was pushing for what she called education freedom scholarships. Yes. You gotta love the names, right? <laughs> these are amazing. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be American if it didn't have freedom in it. Am I, am I right? I'm, Cana- sure. I'm Canadian, so I can make that joke. <laughs> yeah, I saw a meme the other day saying Canadians must feel like they're living in the apartment over the meth house. Um, <laughs> but, exactly. Um, but yeah, so 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 yeah, so she she um, was pushing for these education freedom scholarships that Ted Cruz, a seditionist from Texas. Um, had introduced these, this bill for, and the idea was something similar to what they have in Georgia. The, the policy actually started off in Arizona years ago. Um, and the idea was to use tax credits to generate the voucher money. So the way it works is that the states have these dollar for dollar in a lot of places, including Georgia and Arizona, dollar for dollar tax credits. So it's not like a donation where you can take take the money off your income and not pay the, I don't know, 30% or whatever it is that you're, depending on your tax bracket, on that dollar that you've made. This is this is a dollar off the off the taxes owed to the state at the end of the game. Oh, geez. So, so it's Jeez. basically just shifting money that you owe to the state to these uh, voucher systems. Um, and so the way it works is the states have these, these tax credits. So if I owe the money to the state, I can instead pay a some portion of that to into a basically a voucher fund, and the state will then use the tax credit mechanism to forgive that portion of your tax obligation. So instead of paying, say, $500 to the state, I pay that amount into the voucher fund. Um, and then the vouchers are then bundled together and handed out well, the, the, the donations are bundled together and handed out as these neo vouchers uh, to pay for among among other things private school tuition under the under the DeVos plan in in some places that's the only thing it'll pay for it's private school mm-hmm. tuition so that's that's when i say the government is putting this thumb on the scale of charitable giving because yeah. if you want to support united way then you get a deduction worth maybe 30% of your donation Mm-hmm. Um, or you could s- support the voucher plan and they give you the entire 100%. Uh, and that makes it pain-free giving. It's not really charitable uh, at that point. Yes. Um, so you have these these policies and it's, um, you know, using the, the DeVos plan, the, the federal um, idea, that was a $5 billion a year plan. Right, so just it's a very nice round concrete number. Why not take that five billion dollar a year and put it toward educational interventions that actually have been shown to help children, like high quality preschool or class size mm-hmm. reduction or community schools or intensive reading and math interventions and tutoring? Right, we know the things that can actually close opportunity gaps, but we uh, instead are looking for the magic beans in in vouchers, and they just aren't there. It's amazing. So, but how, so how did this narrative even like, because, you know, regardless of all of the evidence that, you know, Kevin Wellner can share, you know, there's still a narrative. There's still millions of people out there that passionately believe that they, you know, that these work and, you know, the, the higher test scores is like the classic, you know, that's the thing they hang their hat on. Right. Um, but we know from your research and others, um, that a lot of charter schools are fudging the numbers. 
that they're gaming their populations in order to get the results that they want. Um, and that seems to be just one of the many ways they've been able to push a narrative that most benefits their arguments. I'd, I'd love to understand how this gains such a foothold when it seems to be demonstrably false. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned charter schools. That, that, that's what you want me to... So, so the test scores are used in all sorts of arguments, but you're right, they are... Um... They are certainly part of the charter school argument. The, yeah. um, and, you know, I don't, I certainly don't criticize researchers or policymakers for pointing to test scores because, as I said earlier, it's what we have, right? So, okay. but it's really important when we're using test scores to also note the limitations. Um, and if we're talking about systems that use test scores in a high stakes way, then we also need to understand the what we call the consequential validity argument that that the test scores are distorting the process um, that when we use test scores for for in a high stake system for school improvement or for teacher evaluation or something like that what we're doing is we're changing the the actual behavior of the schools and and or the teachers so that they are focused on improving those test scores and of course yes. there are all sorts of ways that a school or a teacher can improve test scores that have nothing to do with learning um and right. in some ways undermine learning right little so, little jimmy is a problem for my test scores so let's find ways to make little jimmy you know not come to this school anymore yeah, let's make little jimmy disappear at least on test score day yeah right um so that that's that's one thing teaching to the test narrowing the curriculum um it, if you're talking about charter schools there are all sorts of enrollment games that can be played um i actually with a doctoral student of mine wajma momandi uh, we have a book coming out in september teachers college press called it'll be called controlled access uh, and it will look at specifically at this issue of the different ways that charter schools shape their enrollment. Um, and so that has all sorts of implications for the role of charter schools in a democratic society and this idea that charter schools are supposed to be public schools, right? But it yeah. also has real implications for making these comparisons. So if we look at, for example, the credo studies, which are the ones that most people point to for uh, charter school test score, um, differences. They do, um, a lot of the credo studies show no difference. Some some credo studies have shown charter schools doing less well. Um, credo, by the way, is this organization uh, run by Margaret Raymond out of um, the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it's thought of as a charter-friendly organization, but the, but the studies themselves are solid studies. They aren't necessarily the best studies out there, but they certainly are the studies with the largest data sets, um, and they're they're very influential. And they you know, and they should be paid attention to. I think it's, it's good research. But the um, there are also credo studies showing, particularly in urban areas, and with um, in in those studies and others, the no excuse charter schools um, tend to outperform the comparisons, which in the credo studies, these, these virtual students that are put together, it's, it's a form of regression analysis. And the, um, the results, for the most part, are minuscule, right? So when mm -hmm. you compare, so it's a slight benefit for the public schools, or it's a slight benefit for the, um, 
for the charter school, right? So when I turning back to these access issues, if we accept and, and understand that there are real differences beyond those that can be controlled for in a regression analysis between the students who are in the the um, the public school and the private school, excuse me, the public school and the charter school, then those small differences become really suspect in and of themselves, right? In other words, those those differences in who the students are enrolling are um, more important in terms of the test score outcomes or even the um, growth score outcomes than the um, any differences in what different schools are doing. And then you have, and I'll, I want to circle back to that in a second, but you also have the issue that I raised earlier, which is if you have a high stakes situation, a school or a teacher might focus on the, in this case, the test score outcome. And I mentioned the no excuses charter schools. Those no excuses charter schools that tend, tend to do better in a lot of these studies than other charter schools, they also tend to be the ones that focus a lot on test scores. They focus a lot on preparing students for the test. So if you're focused on the outcome, you're probably going to get a little a little bump there. But the, um, I mean, the other really important issue that I that I that that I think is important anyway, because we have the book coming out about it, is is this issue of access um, and, yeah. and shaping enrollment. Because the best way for a school to have high scoring students is for that school to enroll high scoring students. Um, and there's really nothing close to that in terms of how effective a school can be in having high scoring students. And there are so, we, we, in the book, we outline 14 different ways that charter schools shape, um, not every charter school, um, but that many charter schools have used to shape their enrollment. Mm. So talking about books, you have a new book out called Potential Grizzlies, which is right up Mike and I's alley uh, because <laughs> you described it as uh, the onion, but a satire on education. Can you tell us about the book and your inspiration for writing it? Yeah. Um, too bad there's no visual with this podcast because the cover <laughs> is great. Um, but, we'll definitely link it in the show notes for yes, sure. But it's, it's called Potential Grizzlies, uh, Making the Nonsense Bearable. Going back to our bear pun earlier. Um, the And um, it was, not to put too fine a point of it, but it was basically my coping mechanism uh, to write these mm -hmm. things. Initially, they were the little onion-like stories written for just close friends. Um, and then I got a somewhat wider distribution and then we used um, April 1st newsletters, you know, April Fool's newsletters uh, with the Policy Center and some of those are in here. And then I wrote additional ones for the book itself. Um, and uh, it's a, it's an attempt, you know what, what you want me to, to um, read one of them? I could. Yeah. So Do it. Yes. I know you have yes. Is the a lot on screen time issues uh, and, and such, at least on, when I've listened to the podcast. So um, do it. Let's do one on screen time. Love this. Okay. So this one is uh, titled. And then we'll get Jordan Shapiro to weigh in because, you know, that's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put a paddle together. <laughs> yeah. So the first one, I have a few stories under this section. Uh, Reformers tackle deficiency in children's screen time is the title. 
Um, pointing to children's failure to spend adequate time in front of video screens, advocates of digital learning have proposed a package of reforms designed to increase, increase youth awareness that time spent on books, recreation, and face-to-face interaction should be limited. While it's true that teenagers are averaging, this is a quote, uh, while it's true that teenagers are averaging 6.5 hours of screen time a day outside of school, some children spend literally hours at a time playing outside with friends or curled up reading by the fire in a comfy armchair, (laughs) warned Anne Avatar, spokesperson for the Institute for Disruptive uh, innovation. Avatar conceded that schools have limited capacity to directly address the problem of children who receive less than the recommended six-hour dosage per day of screen time in their home. <laughs> but she contended that schools still have an important role to play. While we can do little to intervene with neglectful parenting, we have a responsibility to ensure thorough screen time immersion when children are in the care of our public schools. So it's sad to see children missing out on so much software. <laughs> To address the screen time deficiency, IDI has rolled out an initiative to, excuse me, initiative that provides online curriculum from the moment a child enters a school building. Even children who get the six-hour minimum outside of school well, Avatar explains, benefit tremendously from the new digital learning plan. Many children (laughs) have now advanced, this is a quote again, uh, many children have now advanced to the stage where it is no longer feasible for them to interact with other people. Our schools are wasting the potential of these children who could be learning through computers instead of staring blankly at a teacher lacking any obvious interface. <laughs> you know what's fu- you know what's funny about that is we we were talking before we went live, um, uh, and Audrey Waters came up and and I have to say that that sounds like the kind of thing Audrey Waters would write too, uh, which is super yes. funny. That that's that's pretty that's, awesome. that's pretty hilarious. I want to read I this love, book. This is this is word, phenomenal. The word dosage is the word that killed me there. Like I'm, I'm a big like word choice person. I, I love, I love just, you know, those, that's art when you, when you use a word like that in, in, in that kind of thing, that's, well, thanks. That, that, is, that was the fun. It's a small book, but that was the fun of doing it. That when you when you, when you you come up with an idea and then you just massage the words enough to make it. You know, obviously this is influenced by the Onion and all of us who write in this style. You know, sure. we think immediately of the Onion. Um, and when you read the Onion, you you get this appreciation for how they take an idea and massage it so carefully uh, into that style. The other thing to note, because you asked about the book, and I, I wanted to read the story to give you a feel for it. I try in these stories to get at a core issue that I want people to think about and to actually, like I mentioned, the 6.5 hours of screen time a day, that actually is real. That's, that mm. is the, yeah, that um, is real. Trust and, me. I, we, uh, Glenn and I both have boys that are, that are approaching their teenage years. And I think we know a, a lot about <laughs> screen time. Yep. It's a battle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing. Hey, um, so, so I, I think that you know, you know, Trump is out of office in in about a week and a half now, and Betsy DeVos is gone, and we have the the Biden administration about to to take office, and a new education secretary, Miguel Cardona, um, taking office, and so I think that there's some hope. I think that some people are pretty excited um, about having a person of substance, um, you know, is what I thought first off, right? Because we talked earlier about, about Betsy DeVos and, 
And I, 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 my biggest takeaway from her was her just complete lack of depth. Um, and I think that this is not the case with the incoming education secretary. Um, but that's kind of surface level, right? Like we all know the rhetorical answers about what's going to be different. Like the, you know, like the only the best people kind of, you know, sarcasm takeaway, you know, from the difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Um, I'm wondering what you think we should actually be expecting from Miguel Cardona as education secretary. And, you know, because, you know, this, this idea of vouchers and school choice and charter schools is kind of your wheelhouse. Maybe what you think of his positions, if you've taught, if you've looked into them on things like charter schools and school vouchers. Mm-hmm. Well, so Connecticut, uh, which is where uh, Dr. Cardona has has been working, uh, doesn't have vouchers. Um, so he hasn't really weighed in on that. They do have um, a charter school sector, and he's mm-hmm. he's um, appears to be fair, fairly neutral on the issue. In other words, he isn't he hasn't campaigned against them, and he hasn't advocated for them. Um, he does seem to be. I mean, I think it's first. First, important to say, just by you know, by all indications, he's smart and capable and compassionate and knowledgeable and who would have thought? Yeah, has some you know, reasonable experience in the area. So I think that that's important. He's a former teacher. Actually, he's, a, he's he was a male teacher in elementary school and a teacher of color, which are all things that I think a lot of advocates in the school of in, in the in the public school realm want to see more of. Um, so you know, he's. And, and his expertise, he, he his parents um, moved to Connecticut, or no, the grandparents, I think, moved to Connecticut from Puerto Rico, um, and he spoke Spanish in the home. Um, and so when he entered school, he was an English learner himself, and that is when he pursued his EDD at Connecticut, that's what he studied. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to really appreciate about his experience and knowledge. Um, the the concerns I think are about he doesn't have experience in D.C. Um, he he's never worked with Congress to any real extent, and so who he surrounds himself with, I assume that he'll be looking to surround himself with that sort of with people who have that experience. Um, and it's actually interesting because if you think about what what Joe Biden has done with his cabinet, overwhelmingly he's turned to people who can step in on day one, you know, pe- people from the Obama administration primarily. who could Capable of governing. Yeah, people who could say, well, this is where we were four years ago. Let's try to at least get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I assume he'll he'll surround himself with some of those people. But if you recall the Obama administration's Department of Education, it was not that much different in terms of its agenda from the prior Republican administration. That's mm-hmm. what I was going to say. Arnie Duncan <laughs> yeah, it was, is not is – not, there was – uh, there's, a, you know, the race to the top agenda, yeah. and, and a lot of those things are aren't what we would all <laughs> aspire to, to getting back to. It so was, it should be interesting to yeah. A lot I, of people were I, yeah. very disappointed with with Arnie Duncan and to some extent John King, uh, who you know served out to the last port of, portion of the uh, the Trump administration as secretary. Excuse me, the, the the Obama administration as secretary of education. They were good on some issues. So if you looked at the civil rights enforcement, which you talked about earlier, but they were both good on that. Um, but 
but yeah, the the issues of testing and charter schools um, and their their faith in these these what we call neoliberal reforms uh, was really disappointing. And I hope that when uh, Secretary Cardona surrounds himself with people with experience, he's careful to make sure that he's not buying into those. Um, Duncan era policies. I mean, I, in terms of what I expect, um, I don't expect a push for more test-based accountability, but probably no strong efforts to pull back. Um, and I do expect, as we mentioned, that the, the administration will try to restore Obama era guidance documents uh, and rules and regulations. Some of that he'll be able to do very quickly. Uh, like, you know, on day one, some of it will take years, the ones that went through the regulatory process. Uh, I expect that OCR will actually enforce civil rights. Could you imagine? Um, (laughs) I expect a strong focus on several initiatives that either he or Joe Biden are associated with already. So I mentioned the focus on the education of English learners, sort of moving to models maybe that build on, on the first language resources that kids you know, the emerging, we call emerging bilinguals, bring in uh, to the classroom with them. Um, I expect just attempts to scale up high quality pre-K and to scale up full service community school reforms. Um, What about on the topic of student loans? That's a hot topic on our show. Yeah. So higher education is actually an area where the department, the federal department of education has more direct pull than in K-12. Uh, the, you know, the federal footprint in, in higher education is larger than in K-12. Um, and yes, yeah, so I expect the student loan forgiveness, probably not the, you know, the, the Bernie or Elizabeth Warren <laughs> approaches, but Model, something yeah. in, that, in that realm. Um, and I expect the, an attempt to quickly crack down again on these for-profits that have um, abused the, the federal programs to fund uh, students. I expect, you know, the, the movement back to a lot of the Obama era policies uh, around that. Joe Biden also, just to just switch back to K-12 just for a second and, and note that when he was campaigning, he, he pushed for basically tripling federal support for both IDEA and ESEA. Um, that's going to require getting through Congress. And, you know, with razor thin margins in, in both houses, I'm not sure how far he'll be able to get. But that's mm. certainly something that he unequivocally pushed for. With regard to charter schools, Biden unequivocally said he wanted to crack down on for-profit charter schools. But as you, as you know, for-profit charter schools technically exist only in one state, in Arizona. Mm. Um, but charter school management organizations or the companies that run charter schools have found all sorts of ways to inject for-profit companies into the system, even though they don't get the charter itself, even though they aren't the direct contracting agency. So I hope that when he cracks down on, on for-profits, he's, he's cracking down on the larger system of, you know, clever lawyers coming up with ways to funnel money to for-profits. So, Kevin, amazing chat. We'll have to have you back because we're going to read this book. And, <laughs> and then, Kevin's got some books coming yeah. out. Yes. That's right. Um, the the so, Charter School Access book as well. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you online, Kevin, and maybe even lead us to being able to purchase your books? Um, so online, I am, I am not personally on Twitter, but I do use our Policy Center's Twitter feed, which you should all have. It's, it's uh, at NEPC, National Education Policy Center, NEPC tweet. 
Um, we're not on Facebook. We actually dropped Facebook uh, about three or four Smart years idea. ago <laughs> when, when it was pretty clear they were not particularly nice people over there. Um, <laughs> so it's just it's Twitter for us. And then, of course, you can contact us uh, through, you know, we have a, a website, um, which is nepc.colorado.edu, where all of our resources are found. Evan Wellner, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at OnEducationPod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter. And I can be found on Twitter at IrvSpanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting Facebook.com slash OnEducationPod. We're also on Instagram at OnEducationPod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.